Today's scripture reading will be in the book of James, chapter 4. I'll be reading the whole chapter today. James, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such in town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. James chapter 4. I'm in the last part of the chapter, 13 to 17. And uh, if you have a bulletin, you can fill it out. I'll give you the three points. If you don't, you can just use a piece of paper. Uh, but the title of the sermon is, Hey, uh, you don't say. And you'll get to know what I mean by that. So the three points are the uh, resolution. The second point is the rebuke. And the third is the ramifications. Uh, the resolution is found in verse 13. The rebuke is uh, 14 through 16. And the ramifications is found in verse 17. So that's uh, the outline of uh, where we're at. And, well, let me begin. The year was 1989. I was a young single guy going to college for this new field of study called computer information systems. It was way back before Windows was even started. And I made this resolution, among other things, that I was going to get a high-paying job and I was going to get a brand-new Porsche 911 Turbo by the year 2000. And hold that thought. So I'm thankful we had uh, time in Sunday school. If you didn't make it, uh, another plug to go to Sunday school. Uh, Dick Russell uh, was going through uh, Enjoying God book that we're finishing up, and uh, we were just talking about resolutions. So here we are. This passage is, is ripe for resolutions. So thank you, Dick, for uh, introing uh, the sermon today. 
But we are living in a time for uh, making resolutions, aren't we? Right, right now, it's exact moment. We're still in that until the what, the 15th or 20th or something like that, until we give up on them. Uh, we heard in class. So we're right, we're right in the middle of still thinking that we're gonna make that resolution. We've just left the holiday season and have gone from showing people what we have received for Christmas, and now we're going to go into the new year and tell people, well, what we're gonna do because. Well, we need to do something, right? Most of us, though, we want to get as far away from this COVID thing as possible. I mean, it's been like a year and a half, the whole earth has stood still, and like, it just, all of the issues that have been going on with it, and, and a lot of problems, too, but a lot of people uh, do want to resolve to start doing something. And there are a couple of resolutions that are famous, you know, we, you know these, so I'll just rehearse them with you real quick. Uh, first one, you know, like going to the gym. I, I'm going to go to the gym. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat healthier. Uh, I'm going I'm to take a trip. That's what I'm going to do. This new year, I'm going to take a trip. Or how about this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a class. That's why I, I want to be smarter. I'll take a class. Uh, the number one thing is I'm going to make more money. That's usually the, the first, the, the, the top resolution for people is to uh, get out of debt or make more money or invest money. And interesting, I was reading a Forbes article and it gave uh, four reasons why you'd want to, now don't take this in your notes, I'm just a segue, uh, why you'd want to take uh, you know, some type of resolution. And, um, and they're interesting. I mean, one is just for good intention, right? We want to just be better and uh, I want to be contributing to my own mental health so just for good, uh, you know, intention. Also, I can give myself hope and encouragement, right? I could just start moving, and once I start moving, I'll be okay. And then I'll be more responsible, right? Because other people like to be around me if I'm not broke all the time, right? If I'm going to the gym, I'm more buff. I'll be attractive, maybe. Uh, but then I could just be an inspiration, right? Like, we want to inspire others. And so these are good things. Like, Forbes article is really telling us four really good things, uh, you know, to, 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 to spur us on uh, to make a resolution. And so it finally tells us, it says, so be the minority and, and make your resolution and keep it. And, and then it just gives you this caveat. It goes, well, even though you won't keep all of them. So it even knows we're not going to keep it, right? It says even the act of making the resolution and st- kind of striving towards it will have a positive effect on, on you and others. And so let's you know, let's do it, right? Uh, it, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? When you resolve to make a plan and move forward, you're, you're contributing to all these things and it motivates you and, and that's just great. Um, and so that's what I've been, I've been looking for this my whole life, at least this whole year. And so I think I'm going to make a resolution. I'm not one for making resolutions, so I think maybe this year I will, now that I've read the Forbes article um, and it's helped me out. And, you know, of course, now Sunday school, I'm, I'm supposed to know, right? I, I need to make something. And we do. Resolutions are good, and I'm just kind of picking on them. Um, let me pick on some more. Um, so, you know, if I, I'm going to go home, get to sleep, I'll get up early tomorrow, I'm going to work hard, make more money, I'll be more responsible, people will be inspired by me, um, and then I'll retire and go collect seashells, right? 
I mean, like, there's, there's no, what, what, what's to it? What, what's to these resolutions, right? And so let's, uh, let's go to today's passage. In today's passage, James continues um, to, to unfold the, the main point of his whole book. And that is, the new life of Christ is a, is a call to obey his word. Now, again, another great thing we did in Sunday school, again, I'm sorry, I just, that was a great Sunday school, is we are to be in the Word. And literally, we, how much are we in the Word? What are we doing? How are we approaching the Word? And James is, is really pushing for us to obey the Word of God. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer of Christ, you will want to obey His Word. right? We don't want to just be hearers of it, we want to be doers of it. And so if you've been given faith by God, it's going to work. You look up on the uh, title for the sermon series for this, this book in, on our internet, it's called Faith Works. I'm thankful Dave finally gave me a title for the series. But here at the end of chapter 4, and at the beginning of chapter 5, he starts to talk with wealthy uh, people, uh, the, those who are more off. And he narrows it down here in this, these couple verses that I'm going to preach on today. He, he addresses the sin of pride in those who would uh, forget their lives are completely in the hands of God. And, and, and he warns of the coming judgment of those who would just use their wealth and, and oppress other people. And so, forgive me if, if you're here new and you haven't heard me in a while. I mean, it's been a while. Um, I don't often preach a lot. And, and the last time I did preach, it wasn't even out of James. It was in Titus. And so it may seem unprofitable to preach out of a book when you're only preaching a couple times a year. So um, I'll, I'll probably give you a little bit of background here, so bear with me. But I do want to thank you for being patient, uh, just going through this book. And uh, I really think James is, is good enough to, to pull out some of these good, meaty nuggets of, of truth. And, and I'll try to help... Uh, like James does, he, he connects this. It's a letter, right? It's one letter, not just a couple verses. And so that's one of the reasons why I had Titus read at least the chapter for us. And so before he addresses this prideful arrogance that I'm going to talk to here, James focuses on the tongue. And he rebukes people back in chapter 1 about their thoughtless and hasty uh, speech. And he tells them to be slow to speak slow to anger. He also re rebukes people with sentimental remarks that lack any substance, like, I wish you well, or watch the deer. Right? He reminds us that faith without works is dead. That was in chapter 2. And then he finally addresses those who would puff themselves up by defaming others out of selfish ambition in chapter 3. He says it's actually unspiritual and demonic. Our tongues are small and they boast of many things. But when we intend to hurt people, when we don't get our own way, we're showing that we're enemies of God. Over and over, God uses James to tell us that there is only one judge. And he will judge us rightly. And it is God himself. The tongue also shows itself when it makes plans. And that's where we're at this morning. He doesn't condemn the rich. There's nothing in this scripture passage that tells uh, us if we're rich, then we're sinning. 
No. Uh, he, and he also doesn't uh, condemn people who make plans. What he does do is, is he addresses those with a hyperactivity towards uh, being rich or those who solely re- rely on a plan for their life. It's basically someone who will get unglued when things go out of whack, when they've got their trip planned or their life planned and something happens and uh, they, they just they're, they go crazy. Well, that person is stuck on a plan, right? But I will say this, if you're bored and broke, I'm going to tell you right now, get a plan and, and get a job, right? I mean, you, you do need to have a plan and you do need to get a job, if you're, especially you know, if you're broke. Um, but don't be a workaholic. Don't, don't uh, be a planaholic, right? Uh, and if you do have a job, but you, you're not even looking in the future of what you might do else other than just work, how you might serve or, or live your life, I am going to tell you, go ahead and make a plan. They are good. Just don't neglect the providence of God in the middle of your plans. The first recipients of this letter were sojourners, travelers actually. Uh, they were Jewish uh, people. They were, they were from the dispersia. They were dispersed from uh, Jerusalem because of uh, persecution and poverty. And believe it or not, James is still addressing these people, even though the language gets a little harsh. And uh, it's, it does seem like he's like talking to non-believers the way they act. Um, but I, I think it's just the, they're, they're starting to, to fall into worldliness because these sojourners are now sojourning for the wrong reason. It's for profit. And even today, um, we know that those who are travelers need to guard themselves against uh, unique things. Those that travel around the road a lot, they're on, the ro- they're on their own. They make it happen, right? Uh, so, of course, after a while, you actually start thinking and believing that you're the one making it happen, right? You're the one setting up plans and setting up meetings. And so one usually has a lot of money when they are on the road. Or usually, sometimes not, but most generally, those that are travelers or on the road a lot, uh, there is a lucrative uh, 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 job. And so I can just imagine these new Christians who... We're trying to just make ends meet, became enamored by the fact of making money, making more and more money. And I think that's what's going on here. These, these Christians, he's talking to Christians who were basically living hand to mouth, right, from week to week. Now are, they've gotten into that pattern, and now uh, James is addressing this. Now, one doesn't need to be on the road or a traveler to fall into this uh, independent Uh, cultural uh, problem that we have. We here, uh, there are some of us that are travelers, but most of us are right here. We just have normal jobs, um, stay at home. We we go to a local church, and there's many Christians that could go to a local church. Uh, They can marry and choose a a job to stay stay around home. They can have kids, buy homes, and retire without any substantial reference uh, to the will of God. Christians don't uh, really pray regarding their work or family or uh, recreation until there's probably a trial or a turmoil. Most do as they please uh, and fill their own desires and they make the world their friend. And then God looks kind of like an enemy 
And so ask yourself, when was the last time you heard someone say, if the Lord wills? And we know there's a bunch of people here. I know a lot of you, and it's wonderful to hear you say that, if the Lord wills. But I'm not saying, you know, if it's a cliche. I'm not referring to those who just tack it on to everything. I mean those who truly say it with a heart and a dependence towards uh, God directing their endeavors, directing their life. And so point number one in verse 13 the resolution we see here. It says, Come now, you who say tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Again, as I said, making plans is a good thing. And in our church, we have very godly people who help make plans for the finances. I mean, have you looked at the total budget for our church? That's a lot of money. Our, our church goes through a lot of money, and there are some godly people who make a plan for that, and we as a church agree to that plan. And I would be very concerned uh, if during a business meeting someone who is in charge of that finance committee would just walk up and uh, on the fly make something up and tell us it'll be okay uh, if the Lord wills. No, no, we agree there needs to be a plan for finances. There needs to be a plan for getting things done. Um, how about this plan? There's a family that we know that's going to this church. They plan to change job locations so that they can be here at this church, so that they can be here with us. I'll pick on them because they're gone right now, but it's the Barnetts. I mean, he left his place of work in Warsaw and got a job here in Dansville so he can be here at this church. That's a good plan. How about that plan? When I counsel uh, couples or young people, one of the most common things I hear is that they, uh, they, they want to do the right thing, they're repenting, and, and they've asked for forgiveness, they just don't know what the next thing to do is. They don't have a plan to, to proceed. And I'm not saying follow a plan and, and get a hold of one. I'm just saying there, it's, there's a good thing about it. Uh, I had a counseling supervisor when I was uh, being certified, and he asked me at the time, he says, uh, so where do you work, Matt? And, uh, and at the time, I worked at the airport. And he stopped me and he says, so what if you went to work at the airport and you just walked around the tarmac for a while and you didn't have a plan, you didn't, have, you didn't know what you were going to do? And he says, uh, how long do you think you're going to keep a job there? And I said, probably, probably not, you know, if I didn't do anything, I didn't have a plan. He said, in the same way, if you have no plan, you have no idea how you're going to help someone, then you may not not to help them, like, First, find out what you're going to do first. And so, with all that saying, plans are good. Uh, plans are crucial. Business plans are good and crucial. Um, without counsel, our plans will fail. Uh, if we commit our work to the Lord, He will establish our plans. And so there is a good thing about that. So I don't think James is condemning plans, so to say, but I think rather he's condemning or uh, addressing the motive behind it. He, said, he says, come now. It's like he's saying, whoa, whoa, hold on here. And he says it again at the beginning of chapter 5 when he addresses rich people again. He says, come now, whoa. Uh, and, uh, well, that's where I got the title. Uh, hey, you don't say, right? Whoa, what's going on? Like, you're saying all this, like, hold on, right? I think he's, hold on before you get going on that. Uh, 
that plan you got there. It's specific, what he talks about, what he addresses. He addresses the materialistic focus of these guys, these Christians who were merchants. They're in church, and they've arrogantly mapped out their life based on profit. They have no reference, no reverence, no thinking of the will of God. They have had a tough life traveling, making ends meet. They went to town to town trying to just feed their family. And now a few years later, they've figured out how to do it, and they've settled in, and, and now they're making a living, and it's kind of dominated their lives. Maybe making a profit for them is the same thing as the will of God. I actually think James is talking to the first wealth, uh, Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Church right here. This is it. Uh, he's talking to this group of people who think that for them, the will of God is for them to make money. Well, it can be, but is it God's will? And so I have three, uh, three uh, blank lines, and that is when I want it, where I want it, and why I want it. Uh, the first one, uh, when I want it, is basically they want it on their own time. They say today or tomorrow they'll spend a year there. Well, does any of you get a little impatient when we have to wait for others? Right? No, no I, I agree. No one here is impatient. Um, but remember we heard a, a couple months ago that uh, Jacob, he waited seven years for his bride. Right? Anyone here who's dating willing to wait seven years? It's, it's a long time. We don't like to wait. If we want to get something done, we're either going to do it today or tomorrow. Uh, but the thing is, though, with resolutions, don't resolutions usually start tomorrow? They'll usually start tomorrow or after the holidays, right? Like, uh, so after the holidays, I'll start eating right. Or after uh, vacation and all that, I'll, I'll, then I'll start going to the gym. We're, we're kind of fickle. Sometimes it's today, sometimes it's tomorrow, right? We, we will wait for things uh, that we don't want to do or we don't want to wait for the things that we like to do. I, it, but in matters of spirituality, Christians ought to think more like what James is telling us to do. He says to be patient. Don't just be, you know, right off the cuff making some plan, making something up. He says be patient. Uh, Hebrews even tells us that Christ, even being offered once for sins, he appeared a second time, and he, he won't deal with sin uh, the same way, but he's, he's going to take care of us. And so he tells us to eagerly wait for them, eagerly wait for Christ. Now, if we're in James, uh, James uh, 4, at the end here, right at the, uh, in the beginning portion of James 5, um, he tells us about how those who are suffering ought to be patient. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit, and he is patient. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now this is the mindset we are to have, is to be patient when we are wanting our way. But don't confuse this with our responsibility, with God and with others. Because the time of arrogance uh, ignorance is, is overlooked by God right now. He, he calls us to repent now. Right now, God calls us to repent. Right now, if someone who is in need needs something, then you who have money, um, you're patiently closing your heart because you think the will of God for him is to be broke for a while. How does the love of God abide in you? Right? So sometimes we do need to act on things. 
right? When we see someone in need, when God is calling us to repent, yes, we need to, we need to work and, and act on, on those things. But in the mindset, James is saying we are to be patient. Throughout the whole letter, he's telling people to be patient, to uh, think about things, to take stock in what the Lord has done for them. The second point is where they wanted it. He says they will go to such and such a town. And if you want to make it big, you go to Vegas, right, baby? Right? That's where, that we go to Vegas to, to make things big. It's kind of funny. We're bombarded by the notion of escaping our troubles of any sort by going to someplace, right? Why do we have to usually go somewhere else to do something now? Right? I, have to, I have to move my location. I have to, I have to get to somewhere in order to do something. And when hard times come, the instinct is always to go somewhere else, right? Uh, I'm going to get out of Dodge. I'm packing my bags, right? Because we always know the grass is always greener uh, in the neighbor's yard, right? It, it's kind of funny. We always have to be somewhere. I'm going to go to such and such a town, and that's what's going to happen. There's a sign that my uh, lovely wife put uh, on top of our, our bed post there behind our bed, and it's, it's from Ruth 1.16. You probably know it um, if you've memorized it. It says, uh, For where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. And the passage goes on to say, And your people will be my people, and uh, your God, my God. It stands for a commitment to, to be wherever you need to be, wherever God needs you to be. Maybe the problem is not, not you don't need to be in a new place or a new commitment, but rather you ought to ask the Lord now, to recall some of the responsibilities you have now, some of the commitments you already have now. Maybe we've forgotten them. Maybe there's something I need to be doing that God has already given me. I don't need a new place. I don't need a new responsibility. If needed, maybe I need to start where I'm at and recall how God is good to me. Recall how can I obey what God is telling me today in his word. That's a good plan. Be thankful that he is gracious to me. That's very good. I don't need to go anywhere for that. I can be in the place of the throne of God without going anywhere. I can be right in his presence at the word of God. The third one, why they wanted it. Well, they wanted to trade and make a profit. So here, we Christians, we cannot conceive it would ever be God's will that we would not be rich and prosperous, right? Well, you're saying, well, wait, Matt, not me. Well, hold on. Before you answer that, have you ever said to this, to maybe your kids or something, now be sure you get into a profession where you're going to make a good living so you don't have to struggle like I did. Right? Have anybody ever said that? I mean, I've said it. Uh, some people have even objected for a little while or, or for a while to ministry involvement because... Um, it's not lucrative. Others might discourage themselves or others by going to maybe a year or two, taking a year off or so to do a Bible class before they start their profession. Now, if you've done this like me, I'm not singling you out. James is. And he says, we often live without serious uh, reference to the will of God. Um, and I'm not saying, and James is not saying that we need to do all these things. No. But do we think about them? 
Do we think about what we ought to be doing? Some, some of these important things, are we thinking about these things? Or do we just go right for, don't struggle, make a good profession for yourself, and get a good job? Right? I, think we, I think we fail more on that side. We just hurry up and go get a job. And, and I, I even said at the beginning of the sermon, if you don't have a job and you're bored and broke, I'm going to tell you to get a job, right? It's just a, there is a good thing about that. Go to the ant, sluggard, right? But if our mindset is just getting a job, get, getting money, and accumulating wealth, I think there's a, James is saying there's a little issue. Instead, we ought to think about everything as a perfect gift from God and pray that God will supply our needs, that he is going to do because he is rich and it's according to his riches, not the riches I think I can get from this world. He has a vast amount of riches. Instead of it being me, 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 it's to him be glory and honor forever and ever. I ought to be thinking others more significant. A lot of times we don't when we're thinking of when I want it, where I want it, and why I want it. The second point is the rebuke. He says, Yet yeah, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Just imagine someone telling you this when you describe your big resolution for losing weight or getting better with your finances. It kind of takes the sails out of your, or the wind out of your sails, doesn't it? If someone would say this to you. Now, I don't think this is just a common, you know, roast that James gives. He's not just picking on that uh, group of people. I think he's rebuking and he's pointing out to them what the Lord wills for them for their good. It is for their good that James is telling us to stop. Uh, yeah, you may have a good plan. You may have a good thing that you want to do in your life, but stop. He says, the first line, it's foolish. You know, I'm not saying it's for you. He's, it's for the people reading the scriptures. You're foolish, right? Hey, buddy, don't you know what tomorrow's going to bring? To, to not know what tomorrow's going to bring, we don't know. And so, here's an little analogy. It's like, so I, I like cookies. I like peanut butter cookies. And so I know, I know a lot of you guys make uh, some really good uh, cookies out there. And so the analogy goes like this. Imagine you're making a batch of cookies, uh, peanut butter uh, cookies with uh, peanut butter chips in them, and you want to give them to me later on, right? And so while you're making the cookies... Uh, the analogy goes like this. Um, like, I think cookies have eggs in it, right? Do you make cookies with eggs? So imagine the eggs right, are looking up and they're saying, uh, well, they don't want to be a, a cookie. They want to be part of bread now. And so they, they want to be bread. Well, it's like that cookie deciding it wants to be bread when we make our decisions about tomorrow when we don't know what's going on. Because in about 30 minutes or so, in about 375 degrees, that cookie is not going to be bread. It's going to be cookies. Or the, the egg is going to be cookies. And so, you know, we make independent plans without God. And we're, type of, we're kind of foolish when we think we know what tomorrow is going to bring. We think we know what the next 20 minutes is going to bring. We have no idea what God's going to do for us or to us to grow us in his likeness. And when we go about making plans without God, 
we, we may look like we have egg on our face. But that's kind of funny. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We think we're in control. We think that when we do sweat, it's something that we've done instead of that sweat reminding us the, the curse of sin. He, God is patient with us. He's not wishing any of us to perish, but that we should reach repentance. He will come in one day like a thief in the night, and it will be, um, it will be a time when we don't know. We have no idea what tomorrow will bring. It's foolish, uh, and we are fragile. The second line. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. God wants us to be mindful of the brevity of life. He tells us to teach us to number our days that we may have a heart for wisdom. James uses the word mist here. So, so if I, you know, some of us who have glasses, we, right, it's gone. Gone. Right? It's, gone. it's mist. It's here and it vanishes. Oh, maybe it's telling me something. No, it doesn't tell me anything. It's mist, right? It has nothing to say to me. It's gone. It's here for a little while and vanishes. The years of our life are probably 70 or 80, maybe 90. And it's full of toil and trouble. That's what Psalms is telling us. Here's a couple verses for you. Job 7 says, The days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Psalm 102 tells us that my days are like an evening shadow. Psalm 38 says that my days are just a few hand breaths. He says, uh, in Psalm 103, as for man, his days are like grass. So I'm not trying to focus on death here, but the brevity of life, it shows us how inconsequential we really are. Yes, we have worth in Christ, but as proud people, we think way too highly of ourselves. So here's to show you a, a couple of analogies here. So do you, remember, um, do you remember this guy? Do you remember this guy? All right, take them off. Do you know who that was? Anybody? Yeah, really, I, I didn't know who he was either until I had to look him up, right? It's Martin Van Buren, right? He's a famous guy. He was our eighth president of the United States, the most you know, powerful country in the world. He's the one that started the Democratic Party. I know some people may or may not like that, uh, but back when it was good, because he was actually one of the ones that first made the government solvent, right? He did a lot for our government. A lot of people didn't like him either. Um, but, he, you know, this guy, he did quite a bit for the country, reduced expenditures and all that. But he was the president of the United States. Now, you didn't know who he was. What about this one? You know who this one is? Who's that? All right. I was hoping somebody might know her, because she's real famous. That's Sister Rosetta Tharp, right? She was born on a cotton plantation and she became the grandmother or the godmother of rock and roll. She's the one who invented the distortion of the guitar. Did you know that? She invented rock and roll. <laughs> Look it up. 
You need to do that, right? She's the first one to do that. I mean, she influenced Johnny Cash, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, right? She was the first gospel star, and she pioneered pop gospel. Now, we're full of pop gospel we hear on the radio today, right? You can thank her, right? Sister Rosetta Tharp, right? Now, unless I showed you these pictures and told you a little bit about them, you'd never know them face-to-face if you'd ever see that picture. And so, too, it is with us. Even with great accomplishments, we're gone. Our life is but a vapor. The word James uses, atmos, is the word we get atmosphere from. One would think from reading and studying this letter here that uh, you think he's probably getting us a picture of hot air rather than cold, wet dew. Because when I think of mist, I think of cold, wet dew or something like that, something, your, your windows in the morning. But he, I think he's thinking more of hot air because that's what these people are like. When they boast, they're just a bunch of hot air. And that leads to our, our, uh, our, uh, our second point there, or our last one. You are flagrant. That's the last line on rebuke. You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. The root problem is arrogance and pride. And that's what we have. We have arrogance and pride. Now, going back to the beginning of this letter, he reminded the poor that they are to boast in their new exaltation of being in Christ. And then he tells the rich that they can boast because now they have humility in Christ. Um, it's not about what we say or what we don't say or what we you know, do or don't do. It's an arrogance to not believe in your heart and confess with your lips that ultimately God is in charge of you, that he governs how long you live and what you're going to accomplish. Now, I may not, or you may not like the current economic situation of our country or your life right now, or the political situation, or the pandemic situation. Maybe it's your school situation, or your family situation, or your marriage situation, or your job situation. James is saying, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Dependence on God is what James is calling us to. Trusting in him, that's what James is calling us to do. And when we pursue the things of this world, we have to realize that they're passing away. We're saying that we don't believe in the promises of God. We believe more in the boastful boastful pride of life. And the question is, is the love of the Father in you? This world is passing away, but whoever does the will of the Father will abide forever. Do you love God? Do you want to please him? in what you do. Let me point out that all such boasting is evil, James says. That's pretty radical. He says boasting is evil. These merchants were pretentious. They did the right thing by going to church, but they actually bragged that God was not in control of their life, that actually they were in control of their means. They omit God from their plans, and they boast about their presumed independence. James says that that's evil. Don't think and act like you're a Christian if you're not even going to give reverence to God. 
Now, please don't learn this the hard way. We all know about the greatest king of the Babylonian Empire, and that was Nebuchadnezzar, right? King Nebuchadnezzar was a king at, at Babylon's greatest. Um, and, and one day he strolled along his penthouse uh, sidewalk, right? And he says and looks, he goes, Is not this great Babylon which I have built for my mighty power and royal priesthood and for the glory of my majesty? Well, what happens seconds later is he immediately falls on all fours and he thinks of himself as an ox and he starts to eat grass for years. If God does this to a pagan king, how much less will he let you go on in ignorance? What will it take for you and I to come to our senses thinking that we're going to make such and such and make a profit and and do this or do that? without any reverence for God. Last point, the ramifications. Before I get to this last point, I did skip verse 15 and it says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. And I just want to point out, notice the way he addresses his audience here. He's correcting their thinking in a way to exhort them as Christians. It's not true in, in, if you just go a couple verses to chapter 5, 1. It's the same word. It says, come now, right? Come now. But in, in both sections, it's the same, but it's a different verb tense, right? There's no exhortation in the second time he says it in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 5. He doesn't tell him to change, but he tells us as Christians to change. To those who are unbelievers, he just gives the impending judgment. In this section, he tells us what we ought to do. In, in the next chapter, he tells us what God is just going to do. That's, that's pretty scary. So hopefully you're in the first group of people that God is addressing you. If you are a Christian, um, humble yourself. Uh, give reverence to God. We've been given a command. Instead of saying, I'm just going to do this or that, no, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. We have many examples of the Bible. In Acts, it says, I will return to you if the Lord wills. Many, many times you hear, if the Lord wills, I will come to you, or I will do this, or if we succeed, it's the, if, if the Lord wills. And so we may or may not want to start thinking about using that, but not just tack it on to our end of our sentences, because actually you can look in other passages in the Bible and Paul especially, he'll address the other apostles and they make plans and they don't use if the Lord wills all the time. So it's not about having to say this phrase, but it's a good start. Maybe we should start doing that. I don't know. But if everybody says it, it might get a little weird in here. So it's up to you. But the Lord, if the Lord wills, is a good thing to say. There is a phrase called uh, God willing. And... Uh, Real quickly, I'll just say, you know, the Puritans and the Methodists used to use this term a lot when they would write notes or when they'd have articles. And, uh, and instead of saying God willing, they would use the big fancy term, Latin term, uh, uh, Deo volente, right? God willing, or DV for short. And uh, it's nice, but again, it, it can be a cliche. And I, I actually think... I'm saying this for a reason. 
I think they were too close to what the mythology uh, uh, gods were all about. And, and that's close to, there's another saying that says, if the gods allow or if the gods will, right? And so if, you know, I know you know the Puritans are like real smart people and Methodists, they were following along as well. But I think it's a little too far-fetched or, or too close to what mythology would say. I think we just need to say what James is telling us. If the Lord wills. And I think the ramifications are huge. It's because if the Lord is your Lord and Savior, He's not just some God. Rather, He's the Lord of your life. He's in control of every aspect, every cause and effect. The ramifications, as R.C. Sproul would say, is there's not one piece of cosmic dust outside the scope of God's sovereign providence. Life is full of infinite, complex forces, events and people and circumstances that are far beyond our control. It's so uncontrollable that we don't even know what the future is or can't control it. It begins on realizing our life is in His hands. If He wills, we will live. And we need to be thankful that we're alive. Many of us use this term you know, if God wills, for other reasons. What is the God's will? I don't know. Um, is it God's will for me to quit my job or get a divorce or buy an expensive Porsche 911? I don't think so. But when we turn God's will around for my life to suit my own selfish pride, uh, it's wrong. Maybe it's when I try to push off reconciling with someone. If the Lord wills, I'll, I'll seek out that person and, and reconcile with them. And I think we're trying to push God into a box. We're, we're, we're negating our own responsibility by saying, if the Lord wills. Like I think we, uh, we're protecting ourselves behind that term. So we can blame God's will for inappropriately filing God's principles for going into debt, for failing to re reconcile with people, what if someone needs to move, right? Well, the Beckleys, they need to move here in the end of the month. And so what if, you know, Ken says he needs help, and I say, well, if the Lord wills, I'll be there, and it's, you know, Friday during the afternoon, right? Well, if I say, Lord willing, I'll be there, and I'm at work, I have no intention of going there and helping him during the day, right? I'm just saying that empty word to, to say, oh, if the Lord wills, right? We, we do these things a lot. And uh, it would be empty, inappropriately wording for me to say that. Now, I am going to try to help you out there, Ken, uh, when, you guys, when you guys move at the end of the month. But, but if we want to know what the, uh, the will, of the God, uh, will of the Lord is for us, that is for us to be saved. We are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to be steadfast in the job and the place and the marriage that we're in right now. Because the Lord is compassionate with us. Now, I don't, uh, we're ending here, and I don't have time for, to talk in about God's sovereignty or man's responsibility. Um, there's a lot about that. And there's a lot about his decreed will and his declared will. Basically, if you just look back in your life, you, you will see that God was good to you in allowing 
everything that has happened in your life to be a Christian and to be here at this point. Not once has God declared for you to sin. He may allow good to come through sinful actions because He is sovereign and He can do it. But the point is, He is sovereignly, providentially orchestrating everything in our life. And He calls us to obey Him. He has created us and He sustains us and He will make us bread or cookies. Whichever, it's up to Him what He's going to do for our life. We just need to be able to praise Him whatever happens in our life. His will is for us to be steadfast. Can we say, Lord, I am willing? That's a nice phrase. Instead of Lord willing, it's Lord, I am willing. Because he does call us to follow him. Lord, I trust you. I am willing to follow you. I'm willing to be committed to you through good times and bad times. Can we say, if the Lord wills, I will do that, and also say, Lord, I am willing to do this or that. The last two lines, do you, if you know the right thing to do and you do not know or you don't do it, uh, to fail to do it, it's a sin. Those the last two lines is to know and to do. First, it's to know. Be thankful that you know God's law. Be thankful that you know that God has placed his love on you. Be thankful and know what sin is. Be thankful and know that when you don't do the right thing, you know it's wrong. And when you don't do the right thing, you know that's wrong. Do you know him? Do you know that he is sovereign and that the future is not just some set of random acts? Do you know that God has been giving you all things and all of history has been done by him and it's good? Sometimes he gives and sometimes he takes away. But blessed be the name of the Father. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you know that he loves you? That is important. That is something to know. Do you know how insignificant we are compared to a holy God? We are foolish. We are fragile and we're flagrantly always boasting. What we want is usually not that important. But what God wants is always important. If we know the right thing to do and we fail to do it, well then surely we must be doing something. And what is that? Well, James is over and over telling us that we're proud people and that we are to do something and he tells us to do this. He tells us to be humble. He says boasting is bad, humble is good. Boasting bad, humble is good. Submit to God's authority. What is God telling you to do? That's what actually you can write in that blank line. What is he telling you personally that you ought to be doing? As you leave here today, what, what is that thing God is calling you to do? What do you know that you ought to do and you're failing to do it? You don't need a plan for that. God is just giving that to you through the spirit that you have. I'm glad I didn't follow my dreams of getting what I thought was a perfect job and a perfect car and being all alone. I have a beautiful wife and four lovely kids and God has blessed me with a perfect plan and a great church. 
with all of you guys. Like, that's wonderful. And I'm glad that God smashed my plans apart. I'm glad God took things from me. I'm glad God took hell from me. I'm glad God took wrath from me. And he took my selfish desires from me. And he took my wicked friends with, from me. And he took my future of what I thought I was going to have. And he gave me his future. And he gave me his friends. And he gave me his love. And I know that he, when he starts a good work, he'll, com- he'll accomplish it. He'll complete it. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. He will swallow up death, and forever and ever, the Lord will wipe away tears. He will have the reproach of his people be taken away from all of the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's a nice plan. And there is a man who did make that plan, and for a specific time and at a specific place and a specific reason, He accomplished something. He says, I'm going to go when the time is right and be born of Mary. And his plan was to live perfectly, following and obeying the Father in everything, like no one else. And that man at a specific time and at such and such a place called Gethsemane went to the cross and bought and sold and traded to make profit. You see, he bought us And he traded us with his life. And he gave his life so that we could gain. We get the profit. Why? The profit of reconciliation that he made by trading his life is to present his church as holy and blameless and above reproach for him. It is for his glory. That's why he does these things. So do you know the right thing to do when you don't do it? For you, it's a sin. Life is short, and we're called to be humble. Are you willing to say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this and that? Then do it. But let's remain patient and establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord. Let's not grumble against one another. Let's draw near to God, and he'll draw near to us.